Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club held in association with Asia Society Northern California. I'm Margaret Conley, Executive Director of Asia Society Northern California and your moderator for today's program. I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Frank Langfitt, NPR correspondent and author of the new book, The Shanghai Free Taxi, Journeys with the Hustlers and Rebels of the New China. Frank is currently NPR's London correspondent covering the UK, Ireland, and Europe. He previously spent five years covering China for NPR. He was also NPR's East Africa correspondent based in Nairobi. In China, Frank reported on the government's infamous black jails, secret detention centers, as well as his own experience taking China's driver's test, which we'll hear more about shortly. Before coming to NPR, Frank spent five years as a correspondent in Beijing for the Baltimore Sun, covering a swath of Asia from East Timor to the Khyber Pass. He's a graduate of Princeton and was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. Today, we'll largely focus on Frank's time in China, which is the basis of his new book. I'm pleased to share that Frank and I have known each other for a few years. We overlapped for a year in Shanghai. As any traveler knows, some of the best and most honest conversations take place during car rides. So when Frank wanted to learn more about the real China, he started driving a cab and discovered a country amid seismic political and economic change. China, America's most important competitor, is at a turning point. With economic growth slowing, Chinese people face inequality, and uncertainty as their leaders tighten control at home and project power abroad. In his adventurous new book, Frank provides details about his free taxi service and how he got to know a wide range of compelling, colorful characters representative of the new China. Today, he'll tell us fascinating stories that will help all of us better understand the world's other superpower at this extraordinary moment in history. In today's discussion, I'll be sure to work in some written questions from the audience. Please join me in welcoming Frank Langfitt. Well, thank you, Margaret, uh, and thank you, George, and the Commonwealth Club and uh, the Asia Society for having me here. It's a great opportunity to talk to people, especially in the Bay Area, where people have a great knowledge and great interest in China. Um, and what I'd first like to do is talk a little bit about the China that I found when I returned after 2011. I, I had worked, as Margaret said, I worked there from 1997 to 2002, and that was a period of sort of enormous growth. And I, when I returned, uh, I saw, as many of you probably have all visited China and seen this dramatic change, uh, but you, you look at Shanghai back in 1990, that's what Pudong, the fin what would become the fin financial district, looked like by 2010, dramatic a difference. And then by the time my family and I left in 2016, this is what it looked like. And these, just to put this in some perspective, those three buildings are taller than the Empire State Building. And I lived just a few blocks away from those. Um, and the other thing that was going on, when I first got there, I was very impressed with all the growth and how pe people were more liberal and more open. And it seemed like China would be changing. There were also a lot of pressure on the Communist Party, I think, as, as we've known over the last few years. At, at that time, the Communist Party was really losing the faith of the people. Corruption was completely out of control. We're not talking about stealing one or ten or a hundred million dollars. It was a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and the Communist Party, really, most people in the party saw it to a great extent as an opportunity to just become quite wealthy. Uh, and... During that period, it was known as the lost decade, the time I was away, because the government didn't do much to actually address major problems. And so when I returned, it was clear that the country was at an inflection point. And the question was, as a foreign correspondent, was there some sort of new way that I could learn about the country and its direction from the ground up? And that's what I began thinking about. And tell us more about why you did it. I mean, you took the driver's test. I did. So I started off, I had to get a driver's test. I had to pass the driver's test. And I took it three times and I failed. <laughs> and it was really frustrating too, because 
I would go in and I would study and study and study. And then Chinese people would go in and walk out and say, well, that's the easiest test I ever took. Um, and it was pretty painful. It was interesting, too, because there was a, a man who was the proctor. There was a lot of cheating on the test. And there was a man there to watch and proctor. And every time I would fail, I would take my head and I would bang it on the desk. And he didn't have a lot of confidence in me. But he did know. It's interesting. He knew I was a reporter because we did chatted. And he sort of seemed to know what I was up to. And at the end, when I finally passed the test, he said, congratulations, go out and find some good stories. And so how did you make it work? Because in China, foreigners can't drive cars, cabs. No, you can't. So I I first went to um, cab companies and I said, I'd like to drive. And they said, well, that's not going to happen because you're not allowed to. So then I thought, well, I'll have to rent a car. um, And I thought about maybe putting a roof lamp on, but we went to the police and the police said, no, you can't do that either. That's against the laws. So my wife, Julie, uh, she came up with the idea of using magnetic signs uh, that we could put on the side of a vehicle. Um, and I can show you them right now. And so the added advantage of that was you didn't have to drive around as a free taxi all the time and have people hail you. Um, and then I was working with uh, my news assistant, Yang Zhuo, who... He had a great idea for how we should actually, um, the message that we should send with this. And, and you can see right here, it says uh, on the front door, it says, Mian Fei Ai Xing Chou, which very loosely translated, the uh, way Yang translated was free, loving heart taxi, uh, which sounds a lot better in Mandarin than it does in English. And then the second sign says, Jiao Shanghai Peng Yao, Liao Shanghai Shanghua, which is very straightforward, meet friends in Shanghai and talk about Shanghai life. So basically, I was offering um, free rides for a conversation. And you said initially in your book that you were hesitant to go out there. I was. I was, you know, as a reporter, so much of your life is spent being rejected by people who don't want to talk to you. And doing something so offbeat as this, I was kind of concerned that people would scowl or think it was weird, uh, wouldn't be very, very interested. Um, And so it took me about a couple of weeks to get up the guts to put the magnetic signs on, and I went out on a rainy Saturday night, just about this time five years ago, and within 10 minutes, I had a fare. Do you want to share some of the signs? Yeah. Um, well, so what happened? Oh, I, I can show you. I think they... Yeah, I can. Just, I actually have the signs here. <laughs> I brought some of the signs. Here they are. <laughs> That's exactly how they work. And they still stick on the car. I was actually back there. Um, I was actually back about a year ago and put them on the car, and they... They still hung on, I'm glad to say. So they're, they're quite well made. Um, and so that's how it started. And what was nice about it is that um, I can just show you the people. We started taking selfies as people would get in the car. And what was nice about this as a reporter is, and I didn't realize it at the time the way this would work, you know, as a reporter, you're often, frankly, extracting information from people. And in a place like China, you're not giving them a lot back because in some cases, they may be talking to you about something sensitive that's not maybe in their interest to be talking to you about. And I didn't realize it when I started this, but what soon became clear is when people would get in the taxi cab with me, because it was so anomalous, they would start interviewing me, which was the <laughs> best way to actually work as a reporter in China, is to have people feel like they would get in the cab and they would say, um, what's up with the free cab? And they would say, do you have these free cabs all over China? (laughs) And I said, no, it's just me, and I couldn't afford it otherwise. I'm already losing a lot of money on this. Um, And what would happen is we would chat for 5, 10, 20 minutes, however long I drove them. And then at the end, inevitably, they would say, well, let's connect on WeChat, which is the ubiquitous social media app, which was great because I didn't even have to ask them for contacts. They would always sort of ask me, and then stay in touch. And sometimes they invited me to dinner. They invited me to do different things. Um, and it was a great way to just get to know people outside of the traditional sort of re- repertorial frame. And in the book, you use first names only. So some I of do. these characters, can you explain yeah. that a little bit? Well, I'm not sure if I... Do, when I first did this in 2014, uh, the political environment in China was much looser. And certainly when I got back in 2011, dramatically so. And even though I don't think 
many of these people are these none of these people are for the most part are not political folks but they do talk about politics at certain points and right now it's as as repressive an environment in mainland china as it's been really since um tiananmen square in 1989 and so i wanted to make sure that i did everything i could to you know, protect people's interests. The p- pictures of those people I'm showing you are just mostly some random passengers who are not in the book. The actual pictures of the people that I have, I don't, for the most part, um, I don't put out there, only with their permission. Um, because I would hate for something to happen, because they're lovely people, and they welcomed me into their lives and, and shared a lot of thoughts, and I, I want to do my best to protect them from any trouble they might have. And Shanghai is where you were based, and it's very different from the rest of the country. So you want to share a little bit about your travels in the yeah. rest of China? So we were doing this for about a year. And I, when I say we, I was working with my assistant, Yang Zhuo, who helped with a lot of the ideas and got to know some of the different passengers. And, but it was, you know, was, Shanghai is about as representative of uh, China as Manhattan is in the United States. So after about a year or so, uh, we thought it would be very good to put out an advertisement on Weibo, which, as you know, is the Chinese equivalent of Twitter and offering uh, an opportunity to take people back home to the countryside for uh, Chinese New Year. And in this case, we found two people from Hubei province who fortunately lived just one county away from each other who were going back for the celebration. It's, It's the largest annual mass migration in the world. And we're also going to get married. So we decided to take a big road trip. And I rented this van. And it was a 500-mile drive. And in the beginning, because we had three different folks, this is Rocky to your left and Charles to the right. Rocky was a lawyer who had grown up in a small village, which I'll show you in a moment. And Charles, who had worked many, many different jobs all over the country. But when I met him, he was working as a factory salesman in Shanghai. And so we headed back. And Yang came along as well because I couldn't mic everybody in the car. I only had so many microphones to be able to record it. So he had a what we call a shotgun microphone, which is a directional microphone. And for the first hour or so, people were pretty reticent. We didn't know each other. But after you got two, three hundred miles in, everybody was just talking about everything. <laughs> and I wasn't even bringing up political stuff, and they were, which was great. And at one point, this was very funny. We started to touch, they started to touch on a political topic, and Charles stopped in the middle and said, uh, this is too sensitive. And then he was, and he sort of, everyone self-censored themselves in the car. Um, but it was a wonderful trip, and what I liked about it was we were able to get back to the countryside, and it was a reminder of how much progress has been made in terms of human development and economics in the country. This is Rocky's village. This is where he came from. His mother, um, actually had not been able to be educated during the Cultural Revolution. She had been on the wrong side of that, uh, of Mao's, um, you know, the upheaval of that period. So she actually, for a long time, didn't even read or write Mandarin. Uh, but she, uh, once there was an opportunity to make some money and sell agriculture, she made enough money to put her kids through law school, uh, which created this great opportunity. And, and what was so striking is that, uh, what's so striking is that's not unusual. Uh, many people, if you have Chinese friends, mainland Chinese friends, um, many people have been able to do a, a generation economically what might take two or three in the West. And uh, one of the fun parts was actually serving as a wedding chauffeur because both men were getting married to different women. And so my job with the van was actually to pick people up and drive, drive them to the wedding. And this was when we pulled in. This was the van that met us. And here was the wedding procession in, into Rocky's village. And... I just wrap up this part. Uh, what was so striking in getting to know people like Rocky was they had started off in an area like this. This is the view from his backyard and ended up here in Shanghai Tower uh, as an attorney working in when this was built. It was the second tallest building in the world. Can you share some of the stories of the other characters that you met on this journey? One of the things that was striking uh, to me is that if you went back to the 1990s, and I lived in Beijing, there was not a lot of altruism. People were still relatively poor. And I remember beggars on the street getting very little money from anybody. Well, by the time I got back to Shanghai, you had a whole middle to upper middle class of professionals. And if you were a beggar on the street, often you could make a lot of money quite quickly on Nanjing Road. People would constantly stop and, and give money. And this was very striking. And one thing that was great to see is some of the people that I got to know that I drove... Um, really felt, having been successful, 
uh, a desire to give back in some way. And one was a man named Max, who was a barber. And he had come from a tiny village in the southwest of China. Uh, and he had worked his way up and built a salon business. And when I was last talking to him in, in about 2018, he was building basically a penthouse salon overlooking the city. So it was a dramatic change from his circumstances. When he had, as many do, had this sort of migrant sojourn where you work and you move from place to place and it's very tough. Sometimes you sleep on the streets. People had been quite kind to him. So now that he was successful and because he missed his parents and felt he had sort of left them behind in the village, he decided to go around, uh, and I used to drive him to do this, cutting the hair of elderly people, shut-ins. And this was his way of sort of doing penance as he felt he was an unfilial son, but also as a way to give back. And I think when we when we look at some of the, there's a lot of tough things that happen on the streets of China. It's a very, a very competitive place. But I noticed that uh, this growing wealth, actually more and more people were using it for good purposes and care. You know, there was concern about their fellow man. And uh, as people became wealthier, there was a sense of, I want to do more than just make a lot of money and have a flashy car. I want to contribute in some way to society. You also ended up becoming involved in a missing missing persons case of sorts, and this was one of my favorite storylines. Uh, it was a detective story. Can you share a little bit sure. about what happened there? So this project, as I guess you can tell, I had no idea where I was going. <laughs> I wasn't even sure in the beginning it was going to work at all. And what I did mostly is when I found a very interesting passenger, I would get to know them and I would just follow their story. And so after about a year or so, um, I got a message on LinkedIn one day uh, from a woman, a Chinese-American woman in Michigan who was an NPR listener, and she had heard the stories of me driving Rocky and Charles back to the countryside. And she wrote and said, my sister has gone missing in the mountains of southwest China. Uh, I know you can help me find her. Would you meet me and help me find her? Now, most times as a journalist, when you get these messages, they do not check out. There's, there's usually something strange about it. But she had a lot of police documents, and she sent them to me, and she also had communications with her sister just before she disappeared. So about a, f- about a few weeks later, I met her in uh, Yunnan province on the edge of the Golden Triangle, which is an area of heavy opium growing and also human trafficking. It's, it's one of the dicier parts of, of the borderlands of China. And off we set off into the mountains, retracing the steps of her little, little sister, Now, what happened over time is the more we dug into the story, the more we met her husband, who she claimed she claimed she was running from and had beaten her. um, The more we met people who knew her, a clear picture emerged of who she really was. Uh, She was had been a prostitute, which is fairly common for some women who come out of the provinces. The more competitive ones, like her sister, who's named Crystal, who had gone on to Michigan, she'd become a nurse and then an IT specialist had been quite successful. But if you don't, if you're not as competitive, uh, certainly under market, you know, the, the market economic changes, um, prostitution really flourished and, and became, if you were a mistress, really a career with a contract. Well, this woman whose English name was Winnie, um, the prostitute, she had moved to Southwest China and tried to reinvent herself as a businesswoman, as many do, and tried to get out of that life, but hadn't been able to escape it. And so, uh, there's, the story has lots of twists and turns. I will leave it to you to read it. I don't want to give anything away. But we talk a lot about the Chinese dream or the American dream in China because many people, what's been so striking to me over these 20-some years is how many people, uh, every single one of the people that I profile in the book leads a much better life materially than their parents. And that also that gives the Communist Party considerably residual support um, but not everybody can live that way. And so people look for other paths to be successful. And the woman, Crystal, the sister who had called me and contacted me from Michigan, you know, she was one person who had gotten out and had also been very successful. But her her sister really was sort of the darker side of the Chinese dream. And as we delve deeper and deeper into the case, it became increasingly noirish. So I, what I found in my experience meeting all these people, there were a lot of positive stories a lot of great success, but also, um, you know, uh, some sad ones and difficult ones, uh, particularly because under capitalism, under market, 
you know, of market economics, um, people had the chance to succeed, but also there was the chance really of failing, which in, back during the communist era, um, people generally left, lived a pretty similar life. You really do go through the good, the bad, and the ugly throughout this whole book. And I'd like to go into more of the themes and, and some of the sure. characters a little bit more in depth. Um, starting with the optimism of Xi Jinping, because you were in China and Beijing in 1997 to 2002, and then you came back in 2011. That was right before Xi came into power. So what did you observe in terms of China changing and the mentality there? Well, I, I, I think that time, particularly from 2000 to 2010, was enormous growth and transformative. But I also think that there are a lot of particularly more sophisticated Chinese who over time would like a freer life, um, an ability to not have to use a virtual private network to be able to access sites. In terms of personal freedom, it's been transformative since 1989. Most Chinese have tremendous personal freedom, and there's a lot for them to be very happy about. Um, but I think that people would like the rule of law. I mean, it's not surprising that expectations rise when you have an entire generation uh, who the lowest growth they've enjoyed is 6% GDP growth in a, in a particular year. Um, and I think that the party was facing pressure. How do you adapt to uh, a changing society that is looking for more? And what we found is part of the answer now has been doubling down on authoritarianism. You talked about Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby character in the book, and the movie had come out at the same time, and you compared the character of Gatsby to Charles. Um, can you share a little bit more about the storyline of Charles? And then that's also the time you met Ashley. Yeah. And then I think, the movie at the same time. Yeah, too. I mean, Gatsby is... I think that when I got back there in 2011, and other people have noticed, no, have noted this, it really felt like the Roaring Twenties in the Gilded Age. I mean, it's so. So let me put this in some perspective. And many of you have probably lived in China and, and already know this, so I apologize if I'm just repeating the obvious. But in the 1990s, um, when I was there, there were as many bicycles on the street as cars in Beijing. Um, I did not know the names of luxury cars in Chinese because there weren't many around. Um, I drove uh, a Volkswagen at Santana, which was I was very happy with. When I moved back in my compound in uh, Lu Jiazui in the financial district, my Toyota Camry was the cheapest car in the garage by far. I would park it next to Lamborghinis, Rolls Royces, Maseratis, you name it. You know, a lot of that wealth had been hard-earned, but some of it hadn't. And a lot of people felt that in order to do well, at one point or another, you might have had to do some sort of deal or have access to real estate or whatever through your connections with the Communist Party. So there was also a fair bit of doubt around some of that wealth, which is very much the story of Gatsby. The thing that I also liked about the characters and where I thought that people like Charles fit in and also Max is just like Gatsby, they were from the provinces, they were poor, and they were trying to make them make their way in the big city, um, and it was very, very difficult. They were very honest people. But I think that sort of, that American aspiration that you see in Gatsby is very much the kind of spirit that you see in, in a lot of Chinese who come out of the rural areas. There was a chapter um, called Morality is Relative, and that's when you talk about the social issues uh, and China's interactions with strangers. And there, I just want to read a paragraph here because I think it was so beautifully written. And I really enjoyed your audiobook, by the way, hearing your voice through the whole thing. Thank you for doing that. Um, but here's the, here's the paragraph, and it's when you were driving and you came up to the <clears throat> intersection and there were these pedestrians that didn't want to cross the street, and you're with this character named Fifi. They don't trust that you will stop for them, Fifi said. It only lasted a few seconds, but our wordless exchange was freighted with meaning. Two different cultures at very different stages of development, two different ways of measuring what we are and aren't to one another. Eventually, tentatively, the mother and son stepped into the side crosswalk and never taking their eyes off mine, made their way safely to the other side. So traffic is a pretty good metaphor uh, for power in China. And certainly in my experience, um, size dictated everything. And I used to try to walk through crosswalks, and you probably had the same experience, and cars would almost speed up 
I mean, you really have to dodge. It's very dangerous, and crosswalks are really just, uh, for the most part until recently, um, ornamentation. Um, but as an American driver, I would stop. And so at that moment, what was great about that experience was the woman didn't trust me. I was like, why would he stop for me? and my kid. And so there was this waiting to see, well, was this really true that someone would stop? I will say the thing that's fantastic as a journalist about China is it changes so quickly. So the last time, I mean, for 20 years, I've been very tentatively going through crosswalks or dashing through crosswalks in China. Um, Most recently, when I was back in Shanghai, I stepped into a crosswalk and a Mercedes pulled up and I tried to stare him down. And usually that didn't work at all. And I just had to jump back on the sidewalk. He stopped. And I was really, and then it happened again. And I said, what's going on here? This is not the way it normally works. And in fact, um, there was a really strong enforcement of traffic laws while I was away. And now in Shanghai, it is much safer and people do follow, they do observe the crosswalks, which I got to say for someone having lived in the country for a long time, it, it was remarkable change. Let's talk a little bit more about the Chinese dream, because we hear so much about that. But uh, let's go to the, the dark side of it, because you do cover that a bit in your book. And I'll read um, a paragraph, not giving anything away either, also, that I enjoyed. Under communism, most people's lives in China had been pretty similar. But under capitalism, there were winners and losers. Some, like the owners of the cars in my compound's parking garage, won big, while others lost and paid with their lives. That was pretty much when I tried to make sense of the story between these two, the tale of two sisters. That was one of the things that I came away with. I mean, there has been great opportunity for people, but it is also, it is a a tough and at times pretty unforgiving environment. Um, And there is a fair bit of deception on the streets. And you see people, some people doing quite well, but other people still very much struggling, particularly in the big cities. And and that was one of the lessons that I felt I learned from, from those two sisters. And there's another paragraph um, talking about Xi Jinping and his future and perhaps his future forever. Um, This resonated with me, too. Um, At the end, you were talking about his era. Mm -hmm. I was conflicted about China in Xi Jinping's era. After several years of driving my passengers and following their lives at home and abroad, I've never been happier for or more optimistic about the Chinese people. My passengers were smart, driven, and capable, and many were striving to build lives beyond their parents' imaginations. They were living the American dream in China. Yeah, what's really interesting now is that I, I, China's never been wealthier. I Certainly my experience with a lot of Chinese people never been more thoughtful and more sophisticated, and yet we're in a period now where it's never been more, it hasn't been this repressive in a very, very long time, and they're not unconnected. I think one of the great concerns if you're an authoritarian country is how you manage uh, a population that has changed so quickly uh, and and has a lot of expectations. And I think now we're certainly we're certainly seeing that um in terms of surveillance, in terms of censorship. And I think for a lot of people who are most hopeful of China and hoping hoping that economic engagement would make it at least more open over time, at least in the short run and most recently have been disappointed. Talking about some of the U.S.-China headlines now, and sure. there are lots of them. I, I know you said it's not a good idea to speculate, especially when it comes to China. But what what should we be paying attention to in the headlines? I mean, then there's so many, so you can pick trade, business, technology. I think technology, and, and clearly the race for the jobs of the future. So, from a, from a Chinese Communist Party perspective, they have a very hard uh, record to live up to. I can't think of any any government that has seen this sort of has overseen this kind of growth in modern times anywhere. And they also know that the you know just like Bill Clinton's 92 campaign, it's the economy stupid. Everybody that I all my friends, all the passengers for the most part are happy to continue or are willing to continue to operate under this system as long as things get better economically or at least they're stable. And so the Communist Party is under a lot of pressure to continue to deliver. And that's why we saw Made in China 2025. That's why we've seen a lot of effort on AI and on building these tech companies like Huawei uh, that are, are really first class. Because, it, you know, long ago when I started first covering China, I spent a lot of time, it was you know, China was the factory of the world. My time that I spent down in south, south, southern China visiting factories, and it was all about 
the products they were building in Walmart. You can't build a sustainable economy or, you know, make people, you know, help them reach their goals. You got to go far beyond that. And so that's, I think, a genuine competition between the United States and China is who's going to have these high paying value added jobs. Back to Huawei, do you think countries are going to have to choose eventually between U.S. and China technology? They don't want to, but that seems to be the situation at the moment. And a great example would be the United Kingdom, where I work right now. Prime Minister Theresa May defied members of her cabinet to say that Huawei would be able to at least work on parts of of the 5G network. The pushback from Mike Pompeo was very direct. And now we have prime minister candidates to replace uh, Theresa May, who have already said they're, that they're not going to let this happen. They've, they've hinted very strongly that they will actually keep Huawei at, at arm's length on this. So, yes, I think there are a lot of countries feel that they're going to be caught between China and the United States, and it's a very uncomfortable place to be. The fact of the matter is the Chinese economy will surpass the American economy at, at some point, but it's a dilemma for countries because the other thing is they may feel, you know, in terms of values and political systems, a lot closer to the United the United States, but think that maybe their future lies with China. And particularly for the UK, with Brexit coming along, they need as many friends as they can get because they're going to take a hit one way or the other with Brexit. And so you you have a traditional ally like this feeling very conflicted. I'll read a quote from um, James McGregor in this book, since we have a lot of business people in the room. Foreign business used to be China's best friend. In private, it's universally negative. Under recent policies, the government has been completely screw you. A win-win means China wins twice. So one of the most remarkable things to me, and I, I would love to hear from people here who followed this, is that, and I don't know what the strategy was, but in recent years... Xi Jinping has managed to alienate almost every possible support group in the United States. This, to me, is a colossal foreign policy failure, and I don't understand why he did this. In the 90s, American businesses loved China. They were able to export jobs overseas, uh, get much lower labor costs, fabulous workers, um, and to, to boost stock price and all of that. It worked out very well. And the Chinese government treated them often very well, um, even with the loss of IPR through theft from partners and to some degree later on cyber theft. Um, but particularly with the, the sort of the political crackdowns at home, the censorship, uh, American business really turning on the party and being very dissatisfied with this. And then most recently, what's happened in Xinjiang, which is astonishing, uh, at least a million people by estimates, perhaps maybe more, in detention camps. Um, the Chinese government is not paying a diplomatic price for this. It gets criticized. But that's particularly for people who've been you know, very excited about all the progress of China. And I count myself in that. The human development What's happened in terms of human development in China has been fantastic, as you can see from the various people that I got to know. But I think that that's been extraordinary. And, and I've noticed in my conversations with people in the State Department, in American business over the last year or so, and these are people I've been talking to for 20 years, I've never heard it, as Jim was saying, uh, quite so negative. What about the protests in Hong Kong? Well, that's been, re- that's been remarkable. Um, and that actually comes back a little bit to the Communist Party that has been very shrewd in many ways and managed the economy very well. I think the censorship of the Internet has been brilliant by the Communist Party. I don't like it. I'm against it. But, boy, they have disproved. Uh, when Bill Clinton said uh, stopping, you know, basically censoring the Internet was going to be like nailing jello to the wall, well, the Communist Party has done it extremely effectively. And they proved him wrong and most of us wrong. What's been remarkable in Hong Kong, and I covered the 97 as Margaret was mentioning, I covered the 97 protests, uh, the handover, and then the 2014 democracy protests, is that if you went back to when Margaret lived in Hong Kong, and she's, she's lived there twice, uh, most people would have seen Hong Kong and said, ah, people in Hong Kong, they don't care about politics. They just want to make money. You now have a generation in their 20s that are fierce Democrats. They are politically extraordinarily conscious, even more so this generation than the one that I covered in 2014. And what I find remarkable there is the party has had 22 years 
to win people over in Hong Kong. The Chinese mainland is vastly larger. The future of Hong Kong in terms of economics, the future of Hong Kong is dependent on the, uh, on, uh, on the mainland. And yet what you see is this extradition law, which many young people there saw as an existential threat, the fear that people would be extradited to China and would face Chinese political laws in a courts that they don't think are fair and are, are not generally. Uh, I mean, there's a heavy, heavy conviction right there. Uh, and they came out in numbers perhaps that we've never seen before in Hong Kong. And right now, the Hong Kong government has had to back down. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So you moved to China the second time, and Xi Jinping came into power. And you moved to London, and the vote for Brexit happened. Where are you going next so we can be prepared? Yeah. Well, see, so there are two ways you can see that. One is you could short the stock market about wherever I'm going next, my next assignment. Or you could say, please don't return to the United States. We have enough trouble as it is, which would be perfectly a perfectly reasonable position. Um, I, as you can tell with the, the taxi series, I have no idea where things are going. The, interestingly enough, just to be candid with you, the book was intended to be much more of a lighter travel fun book. And it could have been, but geopolitics got in the way. Um, President Trump has taken a very strong position against China, certainly more confrontational than any president that I can remember. Xi Jinping is a talk about a singular leader at home and abroad. And so as I got to know the people uh, that I was driving around, I had to respond to the way they responded, to the way the world was changing. And what was really interesting, of course, is a number of the characters moved to the United States. So I ended up starting off on a street corner in Shanghai and ended up meeting them in London and Paris and Michigan and Los Angeles and Chicago. And so it ended up being sort of a global story, even though the whole idea was really just to write about Shanghai, which I kind of failed at. It ended up being a much broader story. I don't know what's next. I've got three more years, uh, I think, in in, um, the United Kingdom. And, and maybe in 2050, the UK will leave the European Union. We'll just have to see <laughs> how that goes. Um, I do find, I know it's funny, I talk to the hosts on the shows at Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and I can more than detect in their voice that they're a bit tired of the story. <laughs> and, and I keep having to say to them, no, no, this is really important and it's about much bigger issues. Um, but I do want to see it through. I find Brexit fascinating. I find the identity politics in the United States and the identity politics of Brexit very close. I have found I spent a lot of time as a political reporter in England, and I hear the same things in England just with a different accent than you'll see, than you will hear in the Midwest and in parts of the South. Um, that's not something I have been on a treadmill covering the story because it is newsy and important. I'm looking forward to having a lot more time to hang out in communities in 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 the Midlands and in the north of England, and find, and f- draw these parallels because it's very clear that we're in a, a sort of a remarkable moment in the West, whether you look at what's happening in Hungary and Italy um, and Austria, uh, and I want to make more sense of that for, as an American reporter in the U.K. Well, adding on to that, the perceptions of the U.S. from abroad, because you are asked a lot about American politics and what's happening here, and how do you respond to those questions? That's hard. Um, Our studio is in the BBC, so we have a very, NPR is a very nice studio in the BBC, and I often have to come down. Basically, when something big happens here, which is fairly often, my phone will blow up, and I will have to go on the radio and do my best to at least provide some context for these things. Um, I think... On the continent in particular, but also in Britain less so because they have their own turmoil. Uh, I think there's a great question is what direction the United States is going. Uh, since World War II, there's been a transatlantic alliance, uh, multilateral organizations like the European Union, which the United States has supported largely up until now, uh, NATO. And I think the question is what is America's commitment to this? This has largely kept the peace and created a lot of prosperity after two world wars in the last century. And I think what's going to be very interesting and what people will be watching very closely across the continent is the 2020 election to see, you know, 
<clears throat> what are the values of the United States? Can it still be a reliable partner? Because I think there's a lot of questions in Brussels and Paris and Berlin about that. How's it changed for you personally? Because you've been abroad for a long time, different countries, and you've had to represent in a lot of ways what's happening back here in the U.S.? Well, I try to avoid representing the United States in conversations. <laughs> I find it a bit of a loser. So one of the things is with my passengers, I would never raise the South China Sea or Taiwan or Tibet or any of these things. The thing that was great about having the car and the time was just allowing them to bring things up. And occasionally I would add something or I would point out a fact that might have been overlooked. But mostly I don't, you know, my job as a journalist is not to try to take any position on U.S. policy. It's more to try to analyze it um, and also listen to other people to see what they, their questions are and what they find interesting and what perplexes them. Question from the audience. What are the greatest challenges reporting from China? How would you also compare being a journalist in China versus being in London? Wow, night and day. Um, the greatest challenge, and I, w I will say this, it is now much, much more difficult than even three years ago. Uh, it's, yeah, I think that a lot of correspondents are very tired um, and under a lot of stress. There's been some great journalistic work, investigative work done out in Xinjiang. But to put it in context, when people can go out there and even move around, they are tailed all the time. Uh, people then talk to the people that they try to talk to. Sometimes they physically, uh, Ministry of State Security folks will get in the middle of interviews. I noticed that even before I left, there was a more aggressive approach. And some reporters would go out into the countryside and in provincial cities, and they would, there would be government-hired goons who would literally drive them off the road, and they would crash their cars. This was something you would never see in the 1990s. It was not like this. But I think there's both, I think in some ways, the security apparatus is emboldened, but I think also the party is more concerned. And so they feel a need to be more aggressive. In terms of reporting in China and um, London, when I landed in London, I essentially exhaled. And my shoulders were like this. I could see blue sky. I could breathe clean air. There are a ton of surveillance cameras, as you know, in London, but there's also the rule of law. I wasn't being followed, which on occasion I was in, in China. There was a time in Shenzhen many years ago when I ended up in a high-speed car chase. And we could, I was in a taxi cab, and we could not shake the agents. They were very well-trained. And we were racing down the highway. Um, and we couldn't get away from them. And finally, I said to the cab driver, I said, i, I got to go to work. <laughs> so we just parked, and I went off and interviewed people. And later on, the, the agents went and, and talked to everybody that I talked to. Um, but it's a much harder environment for people, and uh, I think... You know, a, a generation is moving on in part because it is difficult there. A follow-up to that also from the audience. I'm grateful for the chance to read these stories, which offer so much ethnographic value. As a journalist in China, how do you move from an anonymous anecdote to verifiable data for the purpose of reporting? That's a great question. Um, if I had done this as just a series of passengers and it was lots and lots of conversations, I think that would have been difficult. What was nice about this is I got to know all of these uh, passengers and people that I got uh, over a period of four or five years. So I got to know their families. I was in their homes. It was all quite verifiable. I got to talk to their spouses. Um, in a case or two, I was told secrets about the family that were not shared with the rest of the family. I could not put them in the book. Um, so it became quite personal. And I also came to view them... Uh, obviously, they were subjects of, of a book and reporting, but I also came to view them all to varying degrees as friends because I also really liked them at a, at a personal level. So the answer to that was I got to know them very, very well. And in terms of conversations, it's, it was, I think, over 200 hours of tape. Can you tell us more about the tradecraft secrets for reporting, especially in China, and compared to the first time versus the second time? What are some of the behind-the-scenes tricks that you can sure. share Sure. Well, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, <laughs> to make it easier, in the 
when I first started out, you actually, if I remember the law correctly, you were not legally supposed to be able to report outside of Beijing or Shanghai. You had to get approval, which you would never get anyway. So that meant that every time you go out, technically you're violating the law. And so what I did is I felt it was my job to outwork the security services. I just needed to be more motivated than they were. So I would check in at night at 10 o'clock into a hotel, and I was out usually by 6 or 6.30 to evade them. I did learn by the late 90s, it wasn't very hard for security services to triangulate a cell phone because a friend of mine for the Wall Street Journal was the first person to get nabbed in northeastern China where it became very clear to him that he'd been triangulated and that he was detained. But I did learn a very good trick that what you can do is uh, with, with a cell phone, just as the NSA does this and can do it, so it's not something that just the Chinese do at all. Even if somebody turns off a cell phone, um, intelligence agencies can turn it on, use it as a homing device, and then turn it on as a listening device. So by the time I got back in 2011, 2012, when I would go talk to people about sensitive things, we would take our phones and put them in a different room. Um, but in order to avoid being you know, located, which was what happened with the high-speed car chase in Shenzhen, they were able to triangulate me. And I wasn't paying attention because it wasn't a sensitive story. To this day, I'm not quite sure why they were following me. But there's a really good trick that you take a potato chip bag, eat all the potato chips, wash it out, put the phone inside the bag and wrap it up, and that metallic material blocks any signal. And so for just about 40 or 50 cents, you have a very good and sophisticated device to evade detection. So if you find yourself in these sorts of circumstances, just pick up a bag of lace. Question from the audience. Tell us how you learned your Chinese language skills. The worst possible way. So, and I don't, I would say, whatever you do, don't learn the way I learned. I, long story short, in 1997, there was an opportunity to go to Beijing. I talked to my dad years ago. He was a very wise man who had worked in finance and other things. And I asked him where I should go in the world. And he said, uh, go to China. This was 92, 93. He said, it will eventually be the largest economy in the world. Uh, Look at the foreign currency reserves. This is the place to go where history will be made. In the meantime, I did not learn Chinese. When the job became open, I decided to throw my hat in the ring, not thinking I would get the job, but I did. So I studied as much as I could before the Hong Kong handover, landed in Beijing, and I learned a lot by studying part-time and actually talking to Beijing cab drivers. And the great thing about Beijing cab drivers is they repeat your question to them correctly. <laughs> so you ask a question. This, this is a rhetorical flourish of the Beijing cabbie. And then they, they say it back to you. You go, that's how I should have said it. And that's, how, that's a lot of the way that I learned was just from by talking to cabbies all the time in Beijing. Another question from the audience. Do you have a favorite story? Hmm. That's a really good question. There, there are, are a lot of stories from China. I don't know that there's one necessarily favorite one. Let's come back to that. Maybe something will come to me. Okay. Um, how have you been able to do this? Nairobi, London, China twice, with two kids, your wife, writing a book, doing a book tour. Um, my first answer, I mean, I think the easiest answer to that is marry the right person. Um, and I'm not being facetious. My wife, Julie, is a veterinarian. Um, she is very adventurous. She's a risk taker, but not a, but she's a sensible risk taker. And to go back to 1997, suddenly the, I was the Baltimore Sun, suddenly a job came open in China. And I came home, we had dinner that night, and sort of towards the end of dinner, I just sort of rolled across the table. I said, up, oh, Beijing bureau's open. And my wife said, China. I go to China. I said, really? So, and I, it's going to reveal how unsophisticated I was. We opened up the atlas. <laughs> and the first thing we said was, oh, Thailand is very close. That would be great for vacations. <laughs> and so we honestly thought nobody in their right mind was going to give me the job because I had no background on it. But it so happened that while I was um, completely unqualified for the job, I mean, not completely, but mostly unqualified for the job, everybody else who applied was even less qualified. So I got the job by default. And I was shocked. And I thought, oh, my God, i got to take the job. How am I going to do this? I was absolutely terrified. Because when you land, I mean, to land in a country where you can't even read the street signs. Um, but Julie is a very adventurous sort. And at the time, we talked to people, and they said China at that time was a, and it's absolutely true, it was the Wild East, 
and it was a can-do country. So my wife arrives, not knowing if she'll be able to work a day in China. It turned out, in Beijing, it was a city of 12 million at that time, there was one full-time Western-trained veterinarian in the city, and that was my wife. And so her, her risk-taking was rewarded many times over. The ambassador was a former Tennessee senator named Jim Sasser. Jim had a diabetic terrier named Jackson. <laughs> I think you can see where this is leading. Jim said to Julie, if you can keep Jackson alive and get him back to Tennessee, you can have a clinic inside my residence. So my wife had a clinic inside the, the ambassador's residence. It was guarded by Marines. <laughs> she had de facto diplomatic immunity, even though, frankly, she was working illegally for years. Then after a couple of years, the, the Beijing government decided they were going to build a national aquarium. Nobody in Beijing knew anything about dolphins and whales, let alone sea lions. But my wife had done an externship on marine mammals. So she became the marine mammal vet at the Beijing Aquarium. <laughs> and so it was just one thing after the other, and then she got her MBA there as well. So I think that if you go, I mean, it's true of all these places, but particularly time, China and that era, you just had to go in not knowing what was going to happen and kind of wheel and deal and find ways of making things work. I'll ask you about your kids, if sure. you don't mind, next, because they lived in a whole bunch of places, and I'd love to see their reaction to it. But I have a message for you from Rob Schmitz, who oh, is wow. uh, the current NPR correspondent in Shanghai. Dear Frank, you did it. You took the craziest idea for a book, and you made Very it fun. work in splendid fashion. I have to admit, I was a little worried when you embarked on this journey. <laughs> I thought to myself, <laughs> what if in the process of giving someone a ride while recording their stories with a microphone, Frank accidentally veers into oncoming traffic, or, to put it more realistically, in China terms, traffic intentionally veers into him. <laughs> Did he have collision insurance? And he went on to say some other things, which I'll share with you later. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad nothing horrible happened. On the other hand, it would have made a hell of a final chapter. I'm glad... <laughs> I did have two accidents. Oh, we need to hear those. Yeah. No, I don't want to talk about them, but I did. <laughs> I'm glad you emerged unscathed, Frank, and you've written an excellent book. I will miss you and your family. Hopefully, we will see more of each other now that I'm heading to Berlin. From your old haunts in Shanghai, congratulations, Pongyo. That's very, that's lovely from Rob. I, I want to give him a shout out, too. He did a book a few years ago that was, was really tremendous in which he, he took a street in Shanghai. And he became a fixture on that street for a series of two or three years. And if you, I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's called uh, the Street of Eternal Happiness. And he's a fly on the wall in ways that, honestly, I don't, I wasn't able to in the way that he did. There are scenes there in which very personal and intimate scenes between couples, where you can't believe Rob's in the room. But he is. And he just was such a fixture that he was able to really get into the lives of people and just on that street to tell remarkable stories. And he dug very deep. So I, I highly recommend that book as well. Um, so what was the question? Well, you don't <laughs> want to, was, do you want to talk about the accidents? And sure. I so I was losing kids. my edge towards the end, I think, frankly. It was good that I got out when I did. Um, it, it was very tiring work. My, my, I was a bit distracted and it's a hard place to drive. And I was so happy that for so many, I'd driven in China my whole time. I mean, five years in Beijing, I drove not a single accident, but towards the end, I had a couple of small accidents and I hit people and it was definitely my fault. And then I would have to go the worst part that was going back to the same garage, like four weeks later. And the, and the mechanics would, the, the repairman would go, Really? Didn't we, you know, we just fixed this four weeks ago. And so that was also, I was getting ready to leave anyway, but I really felt like it was time to move on with the taxi project. Tell us about your kids. Katie and Christopher, my daughter Katie is 17, my son Christopher is 15. And again, with, as with my wife, you could not have done this if you had introverted children. You have to have very engaging and adventurous children, and I've been blessed my wife and I have been blessed with those. And where they got it from. Well, I don't know. I mean, they have had, they have had fun. I mean, to give you a sense of when we were in Nairobi, uh, one of the things that we did, our, our, our tradition, 
was to get in the station wagon and go on game drives uh, because that's what you do in Nairobi. And one of my fondest memories was just Nairobi National Park is just on the edge of the city. On a Sunday morning, we would get coffee and croissant and things like that, and we would just drive to the water hole, the, the watering hole, and watch the animals come in. Um, one of the great joys of our time overseas has been all the spectacular travel just as four people. And I think, I guess, psychologists and sociologists have looked at families and they say that some of the fondest memories uh, of growing up in families is these family trips. And we've just had so many of them all over, uh, all over the world. Five years ago, or three years ago, when we were deciding uh, where, what we should do after Shanghai, uh, we thought of Washington. Uh, we'd lived there before. We have a lot of friends there. We had actually gotten us so far as to look at housing, and we had gone and visited schools. So we were very close to going back to Washington, D.C., and coming back to the United States, and the London Bureau was available. And so I said to the kids and Julie, I said, what do you guys think? We can go back to the States. I'm happy to do that, but London is an option. And uh, there was a unanimous vote for London to, to just do one last adventure and get to know Europe. And so far, it's been it's been really wonderful fun. But I, I guess in some ways beyond the work, what I've loved most about this is traveling the world and seeing the world through my kids' eyes. And one of the my favorite memories was the Hong Kong democracy protests in 2014. I had been going to these, and it was you know a remarkable thing to see people occupying a Chinese city. It is a Chinese city. Uh, and one Saturday night, I just had, I, Julie flew the kids down to Hong Kong and they spent the night in the, in the, uh, camp, the protest camp. And I gave my daughter a microphone and a recorder and she went out and just interviewed people. Uh, and one of the great messages she got from people there is how important it was to treasure, uh, the ability to vote and the freedom that, uh, people in the United States enjoy and that Hong Kong people were fighting for. In training. <laughs> so the reverse of that, and and for you and your family, how does it feel to be back in the U.S.? Well, this has been a whirlwind tour. Um, so I do feel a bit disoriented, actually. I mean, I think it's, I've found it challenging going from China and also, as you are saying, writing the book while covering Brexit as an American with all the turmoil in the United States. I've got to say, I don't know that I have all the, the bandwidth or uh, to make sense of it all. And as I travel back here, I, every chance I get, I like to try to just talk to people and get their sense of what's happening in the United States. The United Kingdom is as polarized as the United States is. So one of the things that I have to do, I'm hoping perhaps I'll have a chance to do a little bit more touring in the fall, and I want to get to smaller communities in the center of the country and just get to hear from different people with different perspectives. Going back to China and then going to your book, uh, this is a question from the audience. Do you see a long-term future for the Communist Party in China? And how has the standard of living in China changed? So standard of living is the easiest one. I think we've sort of answered that. It, is, uh, it has been dramatic. Um, the only thing that's important to remember, of course, is China is enormous. So um, per capita GDP growth is still relatively low by Western standards. So there are some, there's obviously a a large, a pretty sizable class now of middle to upper middle class and, and even wealthy. But a lot of people are struggling and a number of the characters really, they live in, they live in Shanghai, but they're kind of really scraping their way along. Long-term future of the Communist Party, I think that they are in good shape for quite some time. What I don't understand is what is the long-term blueprint for something sustainable? How do you manage to maintain power and still, you know, adapt to the way the population has changed. Right now, it seems to be just sort of resisting this as much as possible. It's possible that they'll be able to do this for a long time. Uh, certainly, the Communist Party has proven all the doubters wrong about its longevity. And part of that is because it's a form of authoritarianism we call adaptive authoritarianism, unlike the Soviet Union, which was brittle and cracked. The party is, pays great attention to, to public sentiment. Uh, it's adapted very well. Who knows what the next two or three moves will be? All parties, all regimes come to pass. Um, I don't know when that will be, but I don't think it will be here for, it's not going to be here forever. No, I don't think so. Going back to your book um, and all the very colorful and interesting characters, you were a character in this book. 
And you had to go through a lot. In addition to your job as a reporter, people tried to scam you. You were a detective. Can you share a little bit more about that? Well, that was just, I mean, a lot of that was just an extension of being a reporter was just asking lots of questions. And I prefer this kind of reporting than sort of the daily reporting that I have to do because this really gave me a chance to get to know people and and know them well. It's interesting in writing the book, and I I don't know how people will interpret it, I found that the the people that I was, the passengers, the the people in the book, I felt were so strong. um, They were very thoughtful. They could explain a lot in context. The more as I was editing the book, I tried to pull myself out of it because I didn't feel... I could be sort of the connective tissue between characters sometimes and things like that. But I felt it made more sense for me to sort of retreat because I felt that, that the protagonists were so strong. Is this book going to be available in China? Uh, so I just got, I just, uh, on Twitter, someone in China had written me just yesterday and said, uh, where can I find your book in China? And I said, well, I don't know, try Amazon. <laughs> and he sent me back a screenshot saying, no. It's not available. This is no surprise. Um, censorship now is is stricter than it's been in many, many years. And while this is not a political book, it's about people, there's inevitably going to be politics in here. People are going to have opinions about President Trump and American policy as well as President Xi. So, no, I don't think, um, I don't think that this book will be published in China. Sadly, um, I think it actually would do quite well in China. Uh, I have tried to get the book to the different people who are, are in the book. That's proven very difficult. I haven't been able to get it to many of them. I may be doing a handoff here and there to friends to take it back in. Um, it's not easy to get it in digitally because sometimes you need a, a virtual private network to be able to access things. Um, so no, I don't think there's much opportunity for that. I think it's unfortunate because in talking to my the people who are in the book, I read everything back to them. I, in some cases, sent them texts to make sure everything would be accurate and that I wasn't saying anything they felt would get them in great trouble if something went wrong. What was interesting is the people in the book said, I'm actually looking forward to, because I already, they already know it's in the book about them. They're fully aware of that. They said, I want to see the, I want to hear about the other people that you met. They're very interested in the other passengers and their stories and their perspective. And I think if you translated this into Mandarin, I think there would be, there's no doubt in my mind, there would be a market for it in mainland China. Translating into other languages? Uh, it's being picked up in Japanese. Um, all the rights, I think, are sold for the Commonwealth. I'm talking to uh, Radio New Zealand on Thursday and Australian Broadcasting. Obviously, New Zealand and Australia are very interested in China because they're much closer to the economic orbit of the country. And beyond that, I don't know yet. We'll just have to see. And... What's next? Are you going to continue to follow these characters? Have you thought about a podcast? I don't know. I don't know about a podcast. We did the the audio book, which was a fascinating experience as having written the book and originally written it sort of quite simply in radio form, which are sort of short staccato sentences. I then had to make it more complex because uh, w- my editor said it has to look like a book. <laughs> longer paragraphs. And so I did that. And then I spent... <laughs> three weekends in a basement studio in London. Um, and a lot of it was easy to read, but when I got to those complex sentences, I was like, oh man, I wish I hadn't written such a complex sentence. <laughs> and it took me, I stumbled terribly. It took me a while to get through that. So if I ever do a second book, I'm writing it very, very simply because I, I know I'll probably do the audiobook. Well, we've reached the end of the program and I'd like to close by reading one last passage and to hear Frank's comments on it. If 1.4 billion people's creativity is mobilized, everyone does things they like and thrives with dignity. If this comes true, it'll be a blessing for the country. It will also be a remarkable thing for the world. Well, this was a character, a guy that I knew who was a lawyer uh, and was Rocky's brother. And we were, it was a really remarkable moment. It was the wedding with Rocky's wedding was over. And a light rain was falling, and we were standing on a muddy hillside. And I asked him his vision for the future of his country and the Chinese dream. And the way he saw it was really about a system where the government created as much potential as possible for everybody, in and not just economically. And I really liked Ray's vision of this because it was really about human potential and people really being able to do 
what they wanted and go as far as possible. And that was his, I think that was his dream. It's not the same dream that Xi Jinping has for China. It's a different dream. But I think a lot of uh, folks in China feel this way. And it's something that I hope happens as well, because I've, I come, I've come away from this experience over four or five years being so impressed with the people that I got to know and their tenaciousness and their ability. And I'd love to see them have a government that would allow them to do a bit more than they are right now and to live a sort of a, at least a somewhat freer and more open life with be able and have more opportunity to reach their potential. Our thanks to Frank Langfitt, NPR correspondent and author of the new book, The Shanghai Free Taxi. This program is being held in association with Asia Society Northern California. We thank our audience here and on the radio, on television and the Internet. And we want to remind everyone that copies of Frank's book are for sale, and he'll be pleased to sign them right at the back of the room here following the program. I'm Margaret Conley, and now this program is adjourned. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun.